Hello, friends. We are back with episode 119 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and if you're new to the show, welcome. And this is a place where we have so much fun sharing the great benefits of the art community via the Art Weekly Project. But I cannot do this alone anymore because I have my great co-host to keep me in line and uh, have fun along the way, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Eric. I uh, hope that you've had some time to take a look at the highlights this week, given hockey playoffs here in the u.s yes i admit i was up late last night watching one of the west coast games <laughs> and got bitterly disappointed because the team i was rooting for lost in overtime which is always the most gut-wrenching if you're a fan of a team but it's exciting though it's exciting because there is nothing like in playoffs the atmosphere when your favorite team gets a goal i just oh it's it never gets old, even if I'm yep. much older now. But we'll save that for another time. <laughs> but we're as much as I love to talk about hockey, we're here to talk about R, and that's also a very good thing because we got an excellent issue for this week's R Weekly episode. And our issue this week was curated by Jonathan Carroll, another longtime contributor to the R Weekly Project. And as always, he had tremendous help from our fellow R Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world. It was a bit of an accident, Mike, last week when I teased that, you know, I always have a lot to say about containers and development environments. Little did I know our first thought was going to scratch that itch for me. Now, when I began my journey on creating reproducible development environments, and notice I'm saying development environments, I'm not just talking about, say, our package reproducibility. That's a great way to handle that is with RM, for example. But we're talking about development reproducibility. And for my open source projects, the barrier to entry to this has been a bit steep in the past. But boy, I'm telling you, when that feeling I had, when I finally cracked that nugget of hours after hours of debugging Docker containers of having both a Visual Studio code and an RStudio interface for the same project sharing the same file so I could literally hop back and forth between the two as I wanted to, oftentimes on my live streams, no less. That was nirvana. That was just, I can't explain that feeling. Now, since my exploration started, which was in 2020, I can't believe it's been that long, but yes, I checked my GitHub repo to check my first commit of my RDev projects uh, repo. That barrier of entry is much lower now. And a case in point is our first highlight, authored by James Goldie, who is a data and digital storytelling lead at 360 Info with his fantastic blog post on his uh, 360 Info website, which guess what? It's powered by Quartal, by the way, which can come in handy as we talk further on how he has been creating reproducible development environments with containers in Visual Studio Code. As I mentioned, this is a technology that is, in essence, tied to Visual Studio Code for parts of it, but it's certainly not the only thing. But if you want to follow along, what you would need is, as I mentioned, Visual Studio Code, which is free, but with an extension pack called the Remote Development Extension Pack. We'll have links to a lot of this in the show notes, so don't worry. And also a container runtime. Notice I'm saying container runtime. Typically, this is Docker, but I will touch on another alternative later on. Once you have all that, you have everything you need to get started. 
Now, this is where things have become a lot easier. When I started this in 2020, I had to get my hands, you might say a little dirty, a little um, specific with Docker files and trying to get the best way of, of composing these layers of either system packages, our utilities, others to get our studio up and running. It's now much easier to get up and running pretty quickly because there is a specific construct that is offered in this integration called development container manifest. In essence, this is a JSON file. Now, you might be thinking, oh, Eric, you, you mean I have to create this one by hand myself? You don't have to create this by hand yourself because Visual Studio Code with this remote extension pack comes of a little wizard that you can boot up in the command palette, which is again, one of my favorite features of modern editors, where you say, I wanna create a development environment inside this directory for um, remote development. It'll then ask you what language you want to pick. In the past, when this wizard, when I discovered this wizard back in the day, it did not have R available because the support for R was still, I would say, in its early stages. Guess what, folks? Now, as of recently, probably about five, six months ago, the very powerful R extension for Visual Studio Code that's been pioneered by Kun Ren and Yuka Yuida is now one of the choices you can choose in this wizard. So now it is at equal footing as a choice in this uh, set of options alongside the languages you often hear about, Python, JavaScript, and Go, and Rust, and everything else. It is right there for the taking. Once you select that, you will get that devcontainer.json file right at your fingertips to add on top of. Now this uh, devcontainers.json file, don't let JSON scare you. It's pretty logically composed. It's got a few different blocks for you to customize if you wish, in particular, the features block. This is the, you might say, magic sauce in some of this pipeline, because this is where you can put in declarations to various utilities, or options for utilities without having to get your hands on Docker container, Docker files themselves, such as requesting which packages to install. And in James' example here, he shows ways of installing both packages from a GitHub repo, as well as from CRAN directly. You could also put in other utilities, like he shows with Cordo itself. He has a declaration for the Cordo CLI in this JSON, and again, that's it. You just have to declare it. You could put in additional things like Linux packages that are system dependencies for maybe some of the R packages you want to use. That can be a thorny issue for those on Linux, like me most of the time with my R development. But once you know what they are, you just put that field in there, you're all set. And then there's additional customizations you can have for which extensions you want to put in this container setup for your Visual Studio Code development. Now, this is really nifty to me because these extensions are not gonna get installed in your overall Visual Studio Code instance on your host system. They're in the container. That means that I can keep my host version of Visual Studio Code fairly clean, but yet I could go to town and have as many of these other extensions as I want which I've also had quite a lot of fun with in my previous live streams where I discovered this extension called Power Mode 
that when I typed, I got these nice little explosion effects on my screen. And it was a quite entertaining uh, thing for the audience. And I got a kick out of it anyway. But you could turn that off and on anytime. Now, maybe I don't want that for my main host. What if I'm demonstrating a work thing? Maybe they don't want to see my explosions thinking I'm a bad coder. But hey, on Twitch, ah, all bets are off. <laughs> and again, all this goes in the JSON file. So what if you want to share this with others? That's where James takes the next step. It's just a text file. JSON's just text, right? You can put this in your Git repo, push that on GitHub, and then others could use this same development environment. But once you do that, it actually gets even easier. And just how easier does it get, Mike? Yeah, so, so the next sort of logical step in this whole process is leveraging GitHub code spaces, uh, which I think is, is going to really take a look at what's in this dev container.json file and, and spin up your environment based on that right in the browser. Um, so this was actually, believe it or not, I guess I'm a little embarrassed to say it, um, but this was my first endeavor actually spinning up a code space uh, on GitHub. I'd watched a ton of demos before, right? We've heard about it quite extensively, um, but I hadn't used it, got my hands dirty with it myself until reading James' blog post. So it was a great use case and opportunity for me to actually finally dive into GitHub code spaces. Um, I, I guess the first thing, you know, folks might be, interested in you know when it comes to to spinning up a service like this is is the cost um i think it costs it says between 18 cents and two dollars and 88 cents uh, us per hour um so i i just spun it up for a couple minutes um so i guess i can report back <laughs> next week and, and see uh how that affected my monthly github bill but um super worthwhile for, for, for checking out the the functionality here and james provided a link actually in the blog post that leads to this github page where with one click uh, you can spin up a code space environment uh, and, and the environment is, is already configured for you it takes like a minute or two for GitHub to configure uh, that container. And then it launches a VS Code instance right there in your browser. All of the files for the project are, are right there for you, um, including you can actually specify in this devcontainer.json file which files you want open uh, right in front of, of the, the reader when uh, that container actually finally spins up. And I think the readme file is the first thing that, that is automatically open um, in VS Code once you get into your code space. So then I navigated to uh, this, this quarto.qmd file and I could click the render button in, in VS Code uh, within that QMD file and then get this really nice preview panel in VS Code that, that shows me the output of my rendered Quarto HTML doc. It, it's just so seamless and incredible that there really is no setup by me at all, at, at least, uh, besides clicking this one green button on a GitHub page <laughs> to, to start the code space. So it, it's really cool also that if you boot up a, a project in a dev container in general, uh, the, your project folder on your local machine is mounted inside the Docker container. So you have access to your local files in that container environment. And, and I you know, sort of remember when I was getting first started 
with Docker a, a few years ago that this was one of the, the trickier things uh, for me. It, it was sort of mounting um, my local environment and, and files and storage and things like that to the, the containerized environment. But it seems like that has gotten quite a bit easier lately. And, you know, the, I guess maybe we'll, we'll kick it back to you, you, Eric, but obviously tools like this, code spaces, um, these dev containers really lend themselves to uh, the, the concept of reproducibility that we talk about quite a bit uh, on this podcast. And I think that's sort of one of the central themes there, but but it's it's so essential when it comes to collaboration. And I think both the, the tools that GitHub has provided with code spaces, as well as what we have access to in, in VS Code and how these, these two things can come together, right? VS Code, we have live sharing even, you know, w- without containerized environments, which is pretty, pretty incredible feat um, when we think about collaboration. But in terms of ensuring that everybody is operating within the same environment and, and the same tooling and that the, the ease of access to collaborate together, um, I think that this tooling is just really exploding and making our lives easier, especially for those of us that are, are working on teams together uh, to, to try to produce some some deliverable that we are sure is is really robust and, and can be handed off to, to someone else who can run it, you know, within the same environment and context that, that it was developed in. Yeah, well said, Mike. Maybe a little help along your journey of figuring out if Codespaces is right for you. I did a little digging as you were mentioning the, the cost. And apparently, if you request two cores, which is the default for these, you may say, virtual machines that are spun up, you do get 60 hours free for that month. So typically speaking, unless you're really using this every single day, you're probably not going to hit that limit anytime soon. Now, if you up the ante for number of cores, that, that number does go down for your lot of free hours. So always use that as trade-offs. Now, what I am seeing is that some enterprises are opting into, you know, Microsoft's enterprise plan for these so that it's being, you know, offset with other platform costs. But certainly keep that in mind. But I think getting started, there should not be as as much of an issue with that. And there are, we're look, we're seeing other alternatives for even that kind of live development working environment that we're keeping an eye on. But as you may have heard from previous podcasts, things I mentioned way long ago, when Microsoft acquired GitHub, they started adding a lot of these other bells and whistles on top of the platform. And this was one of the biggest ones that I think they've added. And certainly I'm getting a lot of mileage out of it, <laughs> as they say. Um, and this is really, like as you hit on Mike, so helpful for reproducibility of these environments. And there are other great benefits too. Um, for the Shiny production workshop I built last year, as I was getting the material together, I'm figuring out what kind of topics I want to talk about. What environments should we integrate with to kind of show what Shiny can relate to in other systems? I used development containers because I wanted custom databases available to me, say Postgres. I wanted custom API backends available to me. But I wanted to be kind of, you know, iterative and frankly disposable if something broke without, you know, screwing up my host system. So it was a huge win for me in my development journey. And yes, Mike, if you didn't guess already, we're going to do that same thing where we build our workshop this year as if you didn't know already. (laughs) I figured. Yeah, that's what you get when you sign up with me, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Now, one important aspect, especially those of us in the enterprise that have been affected by this, we 
typically in these tutorials, and again, this is very normal, we talk about Docker as that container runtime. We are seeing some situations with enterprises that are, you might say, weaning their dependency off of Docker due to recent license changes, especially for enterprises. For normal users, this probably doesn't affect you. But again, if you're an enterprise, this may have affected you. Well, I'm happy to say that as long as you have a container runtime on your system that is, you might say, close to compliant with Docker's runtime, such as Podman, there are ways to basically swap out Docker for Podman and still have that awesome container uh, backend that we're talking about in this post. So I'll have a link to tutorial about that in, in the show notes if you want to go on that journey. Full disclosure, I am about to go on that journey because that is going to be a huge component of a new uh, pilot project as part of my R consortium uh, efforts with submissions of clinical packages. So it will be looked at by yours truly one way or another, and hopefully it works well. But again, the big picture here is that with the recent enhancements to both the usability and the platforms available, you can have these reproducible development environments ready to go in a matter of minutes. And don't worry, you do not have to be a Docker wizard to get it going. I'm really excited for this. And it's great to see more users in the community also getting excited about this too. Yeah, again, the, the tooling is improving and also the ease of accessibility, I guess I would say, um, for, for everyone uh, is improving as well, especially when it comes to Docker. Yep. And yes, I could talk about this for hours on end, but yes, I'd imagine we'll hear about it more later. We shall move on to our next highlight. And we talk about, honestly, at least in my experience, the most valuable object type in my R adventures, the data frame. I often refer to it as kind of like my house of my data. It can be as small as one of those little sheds you might see out in the country somewhere, or it could be as massive as a mansion you might see from a millionaire with all the data you can host into it. Now, out of the box, data frames come with a few constraints that distinguish it from the overall object type that is more general to it called lists. And yes, if you didn't know this already, a data frame is a special type of list. The biggest constraints that we are aware of is that the column in a particular data frame has to have the same type of values inside. So you can't mix integer and character values in a single column. And it also has to have a tabular form with rows and columns. Once you have that, you got yourself a data frame. Now, what if you want to add more domain specific set of requirements or constraints that you want to build on top of the already powerful data frame infrastructure, what would you do? Now, if you've been using the tidyverse, you know about one of these, you know, add-ons already. It's called the tibble. The tibble is appropriate from the tibble package, and that's been the posit team's, you know, reimagination of the data frame construct with a few friendly enhancements that we'll touch on a little bit. Now that's what I've seen as like a product, but I've always been curious, how did they get there? And that's where Joshua Lambert, research software engineer at the London School of Hygiene and, and Tropical, Tropical Medicine, has a great blog post as part of his work 
with the Epiverse Trace project on how you can add your own customizations on top of the classical data frame. And this is a great deep dive into the power of one of ours built-in object-oriented class systems called S3, which we'll be touching on as we go through this summary here. Joshua starts a post of how you can declare a new class that inherits from data.frame using the structure function. This isn't anything too radical. It just simply gives the name of a class, in this case, a birthday class, to the existing data frame. Now, once you do that, it's still, for all intents and purposes, just a data frame class because you haven't put anything special on top of it yet. But next in the post comes the methods where you can put in both, in this case, a, a revised generic print method for this birthday class where you just add some additional narrative of how many rows and columns are present in the data frame. And then another one that's a custom generic that's kind of built specifically for this type of class, but it's there in case other classes want to inherit from this birthday class. <laughs> this is going to have a lot of uh, interesting explanations as we go. So Michael, keep me honest here, I'm sure. But <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's an interesting deep dive into this. Now, that's just a taste. Now comes the part where you have to put on your developer hat for a bit as you think about the extensibility and the practical use of this extra class. And that's where you talk about how do I enforce these constraints inside this new class? Technically, in this post, they're referred to as class invariants. In other words, things that should not change in terms of the structure. In this birthday example, the two constraints that Joshua talks about here is that all the birthday months in the date column should be date objects. Seems logical to me. And the names of the people that the birthday date is associated with should be only characters. Again, very logical, practical constraints there. But how do you actually enforce it? You've got a couple of options here. The first option that he demonstrates is that if a user tries to do something different than these two assumptions, it is going to have an error message, an informative error message, but it's going to stop them in their tracks. And that's where he makes a clever use of a function I need to make a more use of, and that's stop if not. The stop function I have used so many times in my package development over the years, but I also had like multiple versions of these, depending on what train I went in my if-else logic. Stop if not gives you a way to do multiple conditions in one call. This is really handy. Boy, is that a time saver. So I'm already really happy reading this post just for that little nugget in and of itself. So there's a great example of how he is able to put in the error message quickly based on a few conditions to check for. The second option is that you can fall back, if you will, to the more general class that your specific class inherits from. And in this case, it means falling back to the general data.frame class but giving the user a warning or a type of message, explaining to them why that happened. This is the one part of the solution where it gets more involved. And I will admit, it probably takes a couple of times to read through it to really absorb it, but he does a nice job of laying the progression here. Of first, checking what they tried to violate, checking if it is indeed a valid birthday data frame after those changes, 
And then if it's not, then doing an override to make sure it goes back to the data frame, print the message as to why it failed. And if it does pass, to proceed as forward, but then bring the attributes for that birthday class on this new version that the user did, typically with a subset call or some other variant like that. And then remember earlier in my explanation, I mentioned the tidyverse and in particular the tibble pack as well. I'm happy to say that to make this birthday class compliant with say dplyr, dplyr itself comes of a couple of what we call constructor functions to make sure that these operations that the user could perform on this birthday data frame can work just as easily in a dplyr context, maybe with a mutate or a filter and everything like that, where there's some interesting remappings of how names are defined and other attributes. Admittedly, I have never done that before, so I'm not going to try and speak authoritatively to it, but there are some great vignettes that have been linked throughout Joshua's post where if you are a developer of a similar um, example, you can follow along and figure out how to make your custom class that's a data frame-like class uh, compliant with dplyr or another packages in the tidyverse. There are some additional things you have to think about, especially if this is part of a package, such as loading the appropriate built-in dependency functions um, right away. But Joshua does an excellent job explaining it. And also it's a great reminder of the flexibility. And I would say, you know, a much uh, quicker way to onboard yourself with S3 as a class system. And I'm not trying to get into any debates about what's better, S3, S4, R6, R7, name the object-oriented system. Each one has its great strengths and weaknesses. And I, my opinion, the strength of S3 is the accessibility right off the bat, especially in data contexts like this. So again, that's Eric's opinion here, take it or leave it. But I do think this is a great post by Joshua to show the just the power you can have of building on top of already established, well-known structures like a data frame. You're really gonna pull out of any hot takes for, for our listeners out there. You're gonna take, uh, take the middleman approach Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. If <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had to pick favorites, yeah, I, I guess I would lean towards S3 as well myself. Um, but but there are a lot of things in R that I think are intended to make our lives easier and do so 99% of the time, but but they can lead to some interesting quirks. And, and you mentioned a few of these examples. You know, If you create a data frame and, and specify one of the columns as a vector and then and supply that vector with both character and integers, uh, R will silently convert the integers to a character type, and that'll be a character type column. Um, other languages, this might throw an error, right? Instead of performing this, this silent coercion. And the same behavior can take place when, when modifying a matrix object, right? If you change a uh, single value in a, a matrix that's containing all numeric values, uh, change just one value to like a character type, all of the values in the matrix will then be converted to, to characters. So it's kind of interesting, you know, silent coercive behavior that takes place with R that I think, you know, makes our lives easier most of the time, but but maybe can also lead to to tripping maybe some some newcomers up or some seasoned vet seasoned vets up up as well when you when something uh, kind of interesting happens like that. And I, I guess as an aside too, Josh talks about um, Tibbles. 
And I'm almost always converting data frames to tibbles because if I run a plain old data frame in the console and it prints out like the entire data frame and wraps the columns in a way that, that makes it really difficult to see the structure of the data in that console output, um, tibbles provide a really clean output in the console, right? And that's probably because of a, a print method um, for that particular S3 object. And, and if you're looking to start getting into S3 methods and object-oriented programming, programming to create your own classes and objects, you know, could be for extending a data frame or otherwise. This is a, a great post um, for getting started, I think, that will walk you through, you know, writing a validator function to check that objects of your new class are valid, uh, provide informative error handling, and like you said at the end, um, allow you to use dplyr verbs against objects of your new class type, if it makes sense to do so. And it's, it's always, you know, I know that, that uh, books like Advanced R that cover this topic do, do a great job. But for me, it, it's always sort of use case driven uh, examples like what Josh has put together that really start to connect the dots uh, better for me in terms of how uh, this object oriented programming stuff really works. And, and this post shed a lot of light on things that I have seen in like the repos for, for our packages before like a, a zzz.r file containing a, a function called onload for defining what happens when the package is loaded. Um, you know, like I said, print methods for, for new S3 objects and, and other things like that that I've seen out there in the wild, but, but not fully grokked exactly what they have done before. So this, this elucidated quite of that for, for me. And I, I guess the last thing I'll say is that Josh has a, a GitHub repo and an R package that I believe is called extend data frame. Um, that takes these examples a little bit further um, and, and helps showcase some of the other use cases and, and compatibilities of S3. So I would highly recommend checking that out and even installing that, that R package um, if you want to play around a little bit more with this type of stuff. Yeah, I'm really glad you, you called that one out because it would have been just as easy for Joshua to say, hey, you know what? I have a package called Extend Data Frames. Here, have at it. No, this is a great behind the scenes look at just the value of why Joshua built that. At least it seems to me this is a great kind of uh, post explaining motivations behind this. And as I was digging further into this, I'm actually quite impressed that this is just a small but valuable component of what they're calling the Epiverse uh, suite of packages. Um, this is a really novel collection of getting first in class package support for epidemiologists using R. And I think that's very valuable especially in recent times with the pandemic, there's been a very big emphasis on, on health and epidemiology as we look to understand the data we have and what we can see going forward. So I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to know what this Epiverse is about, like I was, this is the first time I've seen it. There's a great presentation that they did earlier this year that the slides will be linked in the show notes. So certainly lots to learn from, but it's great to hear the development story of the tooling and not just the tooling itself. So, you know, we, we love geeking out about that here. That's no doubt. <laughs> Absolutely. No. And that's, that's a great point because I think, you know, in epidemiology and, and some public health, right, there are some particular data sets that need to be structured in a particular way for regulatory purposes where you might have to add some of these, these validation um, classes, right. To, to data frames that, that you're working with in R to ensure that they adhere to, to some of those regulatory standards.
And as we're talking about all these different verses out there, the Epiverse, Tidyverse, heck, even the Our Universe Project, which we're big fans of, have you ever wanted to plot your own universe? I know I have. Well, apparently we're not the only ones because Bob Brutus is back at it again, this time not with a web hour post, although he's still very much on that train. But he took a small break from that, apparently. And as author in his, his latest blog post, a new R package that he used to scratch an itch for a recent uh, presentation at his day job called GG Solar. Mike, what in the world is this all about? So it is a very specific uh, visualization library that Bob has built, I believe, on top of ggplot to essentially plot sort of like a solar system. Um, it's really, really cool. And his use case was to visualize the different integrations or, or other solutions um, that his company, Gray Noises platform has. And instead of building like a plain old table that, that just lists the other, uh, the other platforms that, that their platform integrates with, um, he thought carefully about a great way to represent this in a little more of a creative way than, than just a, a plain old table. Um, it kind of reminds me, I hope this isn't like a bad thing to say, because I know this is sort of like a, a taboo, uh, a, a taboo thing out there, but it, it just reminds me of like a way better improved version of a Gartner quadrant. I'm sorry for anyone out there to, to say the G word if, if folks have strong opinions about Gartner as I do, but <laughs> this is a, a way improved, um, visualization to, I guess, show other, other, you know, players in the space or, or other, right, in Bob's case, integrators, um, integrations and vendors that his his company's platform uh, integrates with. So I think if I was following along correctly on Twitter, um, he may have ha had a little data viz help from Tanya Shapiro, um, who's a great data visualization uh, data scientist as well. And I watched that, that, that uh, sort of communication happen over Twitter as this blog post developed. And what the resulting visualizations look like is essentially you can think of, I, I believe, um, gray noise sort of at the center of the universe, maybe maybe being uh, the sun in the solar system. And then each vendor that they integrate with would be on a particular ring um, around this, this sun, which are all just concentric circles around uh, the center there. And the location of, of the vendor, which you could think of as the, the planet, uh, if you will, is sort of randomly assigned on each each ring. Um, so it kind of makes for this this uh, this authentic looking solar system and, and provides a, a lot of visual creativity. So I, I really like the way that Bob sort of did that random assignment for, for where on each ring uh, the, the planet, quote unquote, object would be located. Um, really cool uh, blog post and, and visual. And I am very appreciative that he uh, turn this into an R package that, that the rest of us can leverage, uh, GG Solar. So check it out. Maybe you have a use case for it. Yeah, I, I think anytime I can get away from those boring tables in my slide decks, I want to fold something like this and just get the the get more attention, right? I mean, you don't want you don't want to bore people to to sleep with too many tables in your presentations. Trust me, I've been there, made that mistake a few times, and now I try to at least make things interactive if I still have to do a table route, but if you want to get really geeky with some of the back end of this, um, in the post, Bob mentions that there is a function to generate random planets. 
and he's using hidden Markov models to do that. I mean, come on. You had me at hello, so to speak. Like now you've got Markov models. Bob, is there anything you can't do? But uh, wow, that's amazing stuff. So yeah, have a have a look at that GitHub repo. It's got a lot of great content in there. And Bob is always upfront with things that he'd like to improve on. And he's always been, at least in my experience, very appreciative of community involvement to supercharge his efforts. So certainly if you're inspired to take Gigi Solar to new heights in the universe, so to speak, um, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from it. But um, yeah, great job, Bob, if you're listening. And obviously get well soon. We know you've been battling from the effects of you know what kind of virus, but at least you're you're still generating some awesome content from it. So kudos to you for that. Yes, absolutely. Did you find any other highlights this week, Eric, that jumped out at you? Oh, there's a whole boatload to choose from here in this issue. Jonathan did an amazing job as usual. But as we talk about these, you know, collection of packages or tools that are related, um, the additional find out call out here is from Sebastian Krantz who reflects on the growth of his package that's been built now for about four years called Collapse, which gives you a high performance way of working with our object structures and how that has led to now this collection of packages called the Fastverse, which is providing really important and really top-notch performance gains in various data operations and statistical operations that if you're dealing with you know large data or you're dealing with complex algorithms and you want to squeeze that every last bit out of speed and memory usage i think the fast verse is something worth your attention so i really like to hear the motivations and all the learning that sebastian had along the way of how this started small but has now grown into one of looks like his favorite collaborations in the open community. So I really enjoyed seeing that. Uh, Mike, what did you find? That's awesome. Uh, uh, Nicola Rennie showcased how to do some feature engineering with time series data um, to sort of wrangle that time series data into a data set that can be used for traditional machine learning purposes. Um, and, and in her case, create a model to detect heart murmurs using tidy models. And this is just a, a use case that that we run into all the time, right? It is you're, you're trying to do some traditional ML work like on a classification problem, but your data um, isn't all the way there yet, right? Maybe you have some time series data and obviously you have to aggregate that or boil that down uh, some way such that you have uh, independence right between your all of your observations in your data set um, you know sort of for each individual in your data set they're only being represented once so there's a lot of different ways and methodologies to do this and Nicola uh, called out quite a few um, and it was just a great blog post to sort of see this use case in action and a, a reminder that those of us uh, in the data science space on a day-to-day -day basis aren't aren't being handed perfect data and uh, we have to, to, to work through getting that data into a, a model-ready data set. And that, that is a lot of our work. So it's great to see uh, blog posts sort of covering that step in, in the ML process. Yeah, Nicola does an amazing job as usual of a practical problem and setting it up effectively. And yes, I'm, I'm absorbing as much content as I can about tidy models these days because I am starting to, along with you know teams internally, look at different ways of applying these techniques of the data we have. So I'm really interested to see the time series 
spin on this because um, we're collecting much more data every every experiment we're getting a lot more data from digital means and other uh, venues so it's great to see ways that we could we could tackle that and yes uh, it's just one of the many many excellent resources available in this issue and if you want to find out more well it's easy you just go to rweekly.org we got all the links for this issue and all past issues right there on the home page and we also love hearing from you. I've been, uh, you know, really advocating this new approach to interacting with the community and especially with the content like this that I produce. I, co- I actually can't coin, I don't take credit for this term, but I've been learning about a system called value for value, where basically if you get usefulness out of this particular podcast or the R Wiki project, we love hearing from you. We love seeing what you can do with it. And one of the best ways you can show value is by helping with the issues directly. We're just a pull request away. You can see the link at the top of the page for the upcoming draft, as well as a quick link to our GitHub repo where you can add a great resource on a package, a blog post, a new workshop coming, who knows, into the draft. And we'll be glad to get that into next week's issue. And another way you can show your, your love for the show or the project is sending your trusty little co-hosts here, uh, me, myself and Mike, a little bit of boost along the way in one of those awesome new modern podcast apps like Podverse or Fountain, where it is super easy to get set up with a service called Albi, and you can get send us a little fun along the way of a great message, and we'll read it right here alongside the show. And also, we love hearing from you in our contact page. We have a contact link directly in the show notes of this episode. Just head to that in your favorite podcast player, and you'll see a link right there, right there in the notes. And also, you can give us a shout on social media. I am still sporadically on Twitter with at the Rcast, but you can find me and my adventures more on Mastodon with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And Mike, where can the listeners find you? Yeah, uh, you can find me on, on Twitter sporadically at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K, or on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome stuff. And for future episodes, Mike and I may be making a slight back-end change to how we're producing this, and hopefully it doesn't introduce any bugs along the way. But, you know, as I say, like the fellow podcast I listen to, I'm running with scissors sometimes when I do this new uh, new changes. So you've been warned anyway, but one way or another, we will have another edition of our weekly highlights, this podcast right here for all of you to listen to next week.